Uh, good morning. It's, it's really good to be um, with you all this morning. Um, many of you um, I know, and it's a joy and a pleasure to, to see you again. Many of you I haven't met yet and would love to uh, be able to get to know you, albeit in a limited manner, but be able to get to know you a little bit today after the service. Uh, my name is Glenn, and in the picture you see here, that's my wife, uh, Sonia. Um, and at that time, that's a dated picture, uh, she was pregnant with our first child, who is uh, now nine months old. His name is Theodore. Uh, they wanted to be with you, and we certainly wanted uh, many of you to be able to meet him for the first time. Um, but she was already um, committed to uh, teaching a kids' class at our home church uh, before uh, Pastor Jamie and I set this up, so she wasn't able to make it. Uh, but she says hello, and she wishes she could have uh, been with, uh, with you all again. Um, as um, Brent said, we, um, we served as uh, missionaries, particularly church planters in the Republic of Turkey, and before I get into that, I just want to say thank you so much uh, for your, not only your partnership, but your friendship with us over the last few years. Um, for those that I haven't had the chance to meet yet, uh, we have been partnered together and friends now for four years, roughly, uh, maybe going on five. And the way in which it came about was just very providential, which seems to be the way things work around here um, as it relates to our relationship. Pastor Jamie goes somewhere else, I come, we preach the same text. I was, we began fundraising to go um, uh, plant churches overseas, and I was just, um, uh, I found a list of churches that, um, at least on paper, it appeared that we would agree uh, with theologically and methodologically, and I had, I had never met Pastor Jamie, and I just thought, well, you got to try. We, we got to raise funds somehow. So I just uh, found Pastor Jamie's email, and I emailed him. I sent him um, a packet with some information on us, and I said, I'd, I would love to be able to get together, have coffee or lunch, and um, introduce myself to you and explain a bit about what we intend to do, what we endeavor to do in Turkey. Not knowing that I would ever get a response back, and he graciously responded and said, I'd love to meet with you. Um, would love to hear about the work that the Lord is calling you to do in Turkey. And we met, and from that day, we've just had a, a really um, a good and, um, at least in my estimation, uh, genuine and deep friendship. And so just thank you all so much for the um, very evident work of grace that God has done in and through you. And that has extended even to Sonia, uh, me, and, and now Theodore. Um, I want to show you just some slides to give you an update and, and an overview of the work that we did in Turkey, and now, um, unexpectedly, but um, uh, Lord willing, the work that we intend to do in uh, Cambodia. We went to Turkey uh, with, the, uh, with uh, the intention of uh, learning the language and the culture, being able to adapt to the language and the culture, and um, once we were competent enough in the language, we wanted to be able to um, proclaim the gospel or share the gospel, extend the gospel into new regions throughout Turkey that do not have a witness to the message of Christ. We wanted to see disciples made and organized into uh, churches, and we wanted to see uh, pastors trained for the work of the ministry and to be able to go out themselves and establish churches where there are no churches um, in Turkey. Uh, to give you some context, Turkey is a nation that's now roughly 85 million people. It's 99% Islamic, and it's roughly 0.0001% Christian. Now, to put that in perspective, that means in a country of roughly 85 million people, there are, this is an estimate, it's, we can't know this definitively, but there are an estimated 120 churches throughout the entire country. And they're not evenly dispersed as well. Um, the majority of churches throughout Turkey are in uh, the, the cities of Istanbul, which is a city of roughly 20 million people, the capital city of Ankara, which is roughly 6 million people, and a coastal city named Izmir or as you may, might know it from biblical times, Ephesus. And it's a city of roughly 4 million people. All throughout Turkey, then, you have these cities of 2 million people, 1 million people. You have you know, smaller cities of 500,000 people, 250,000 people, 100,000 people. 
that have absolutely no church and no known Christians. So Turkey is per capita the most unreached country in the world. So it's a very hard country. It's, it's, a, it's, it's very slow and uh, difficult work um, to preach the gospel there. So our first goal then in the country was to be able to learn the language. And if you wouldn't mind, um, it's Bonnie, right? Bonnie, yeah, just go to the next slide. Thank you. Our first goal upon arrival in the country was learn the language and the culture so that we can clearly, competently, and hopefully persuasively uh, share the good news of Christ. So um, what that looked like was for at least the first year, it was full-time language studies. That was our primary responsibility. Um, at least on my end, that was roughly eight, sometimes ten hours a day of linguistic studies. Uh, the language there is Turkish. So some people ask me, uh, what do they speak in Turkey? Gobble, gobble. And uh, no, it's an actual language. It's not gobble, gobble. And it's not Arabic. It's Turkish. Um, it's one of the more difficult languages in the world for an English speaker. And um, we set, I set some goals throughout the process, um, some kind of milestones to gauge where I was in the process of acquiring the language. One of them was, um, after six months, I wanted to be able to share a brief devotion uh, in, in the Turkish language. And so what you see there uh, in the picture is me sharing my first sermonette, if you will, my first devotion um, in a Lord's Day gathering. I, I, I taught from Ephesians chapter 4. Um, in Turkish. I'm very thankful that that was not recorded. I, it would be dreadful to go back and listen to that, but nonetheless, the Lord gave us grace, and uh, we were able to plug away, plot away at learning the language. Um, this was Sonia at a ladies' event at the church that we were attending while we were in language studies, and she was reading scripture um, in, the, in Turkish um, at the event. And so, after roughly a year of full-time language studies, um, I was in a position linguistically to where I could begin teaching and preaching every week. And so in the church that we were attending, um, I started participating uh, on a weekly basis in the teaching and preaching ministry of the church. And so this looked, um, the way in which this looked, what this looked like was one, uh, I was preaching on a, on a monthly basis um, uh, just from various texts. And that was roughly 30 to 45 minutes. And then um, throughout the week, I started meeting with some brothers to, um, for deeper Bible studies and even some theological studies. So in this particular church, there was one brother who desired to serve as an elder, and he wanted some theological instruction. So Wayne Grudem's systematic theology textbook was translated into Turkish. And so for roughly six months, he and I went through that. And uh, he helped my Turkish and... Um, aided me in being able to, um, to teach and explain theological truths and concepts in the Turkish language in a comprehensible way, and, um, and I was able to impart to him a little bit more theology to what he already had. And um, so we were serving in this way, um, but as we were in language studies, we also recognized that it was a unique time in which we could um, reach out to the city reach out to the community and share the gospel with others. So we are praying about how we could go about doing that. And if you wouldn't mind, Bonnie, to go to the next slide. One of the ways we found that we could do that was by offering an English class. So that way we could um, give, offer free opportunities and lessons for um, those who desire to learn English or who had learned English and wanted to improve their speaking abilities uh, to come and just spend an evening with us and we would offer lessons to beginners, conversational groups for advanced speakers. Not entirely sure how it was going to go, but God blessed. And we, um, we had uh, 50 or more people every week uh, through that during our time of language studies. We saw many people attend church with us for the first time, receive Bibles in their language for the first time. And we were just really thankful for the way in which God was using that. And once we reached the um, time in our studies where we knew that we were um, linguistically capable of ministering the gospel and leading a church in, in the Turkish language, we began to pray about where God would lead us to, to establish a new church. All the while, he began doing a work in a city called Kutahya. Kutahya is a city that was roughly one hour south of where we were, it's a city, it's an area of roughly 500,000 people. Now, what was interesting about Kutahya 
is it was not at all a place that we thought God would lead us to, to do gospel ministry. Uh, Kutahia is known as one of the most religiously and politically conservative cities in all of Turkey. It is one of those places that you look to from a human vantage point and say, we, nothing's going to happen there, we should go somewhere else. But as we were learning the language, we were partnered with veteran missionaries, we started getting requests for Bibles, Turkish Bibles, and a follow-up with a Christian teacher from that city. And so we began traveling to this city to meet Bible requesters and to meet up with individuals who wanted to have Bible studies with Christians, since there were none in their uh, respective city. And so we, um, we started meeting these people, and very much to our surprise and a very real exposure of our lack of faith, people began to come to faith in Christ. Uh, it, uh, believers were baptized, and if you wouldn't mind, Bonnie, to go to the next slide, um, Turkish individuals began to come to faith in Christ, Iranians began to come to faith in Christ, um, an Afghani brother came to faith in Christ, and uh, even Iraqi sisters came to faith in Christ. And so we began to realize the Lord is doing a great work in this city. And as we were praying, Lord, where are you going to lead us to establish a new gospel witness? He began to very evidently open a door for Sonia and me to relocate to Kutahia to, to, to make disciples there and to organize and establish this church and to begin training, um, uh, begin the long-term work of endeavoring to train pastors for the work of gospel ministry. And if you wouldn't mind to go to the next slide, um, this was us after a, a baptismal service and we were just celebrating a baptism of a brother um, who professed faith in the gospel and do I have another slide after that, Bonnie? Oh, okay. Um, and so as we were kind of plodding away, establishing disciples in the faith of the gospel and beginning to lay the groundwork and the foundation for raising up pastors in the church, uh, we unexpectedly went to the immigration office and got the boot. And we at, were not at all expecting this. We had only been there for two years. We anticipated a few, at least a few more years, but... I'm sure you all have heard from uh, Peter and Janine and others just uh, how tumultuous Turkey has been over the last few years. And unfortunately, there was just a wave that came through and it caught up Sonia and me. And so we came up, came back unexpectedly last year um, and we're just, uh, well, at first, just to be quite honest, we came back just crushed. And we just came back wondering, God, what are you doing? And, and what is next? And so with time, as we began to pray about this, the Lord began to really direct our attentions to the country of Cambodia. Uh, Cambodia is a country in Southeast Asia. As you can see, it borders Thailand, Vietnam, and, and Laos. Um, it's not a very, it's not a well-known country. It's not an, um, it's a fairly obscure nation, most infamous for presumably, you know, at least a little bit about the Khmer Rouge, where um, uh, two million people were just slaughtered. Uh, so it's a very war-torn and broken country, and that's evident even today, uh, with a great need for the gospel. If you wouldn't mind to go to the next slide. When you look at Cambodia, it's a, it's a country of over 16 million people. Um, the language is Kumai. Um, in terms of difficulty, it's comparable to Turkish. People ask, okay, are there any linguistic similarities between Turkish and Kumai? Uh, there's one, and that is they're not English. That's it. And so we're going to be learning a brand new language. Um, uh, we've, be we've begun the process now, but it is a, a relatively difficult language, so we'll be um, in full-time language studies for the first couple of years. Um, it's a nation that's roughly 96% Buddhist and 1.5% evangelical. Now, one thing to bear in mind about that evangelical statistic um, it's an all-encompassing term. It's a large uh, um, net, which means just because someone is categorized as evangelical doesn't mean they hold to an evangelical gospel. It doesn't mean that they're preaching justification by faith. Um, and so even among the Christian population, if you meet a Cambodian and they say they believe the gospel, you do have to ask, well, which gospel? You know, the largest um, um, evangelical presence or, uh, you know, so-called evangelical denomination in the country today um, is a group that's very akin to a kind of Benny Hinn kind of Christianity. And so it's, it's a prosperity gospel. 
And so in all likelihood, it's probably less than 1% of the population that has heard a clear, faithful articulation of the gospel that through faith in Christ, you can be justified and made right in the sight of God. So there's great work to be done. We, um, we're, our, our plan um, is to leave in the, uh, in the first into the second week of January. So we would ask that you would pray with us to this end. And there are a few ways that we want to ask you um, as friends and as a supporting church to pray with us, um, mainly in terms of praises, however. One, uh, one of the ways we were praying for our transition to Cambodia was for God to provide teammates whom we agree with, yes, theologically, but also methodologically, individuals that we could really partner with and do ministry uh, with, do the hard work of church planting with. And God saw fit to close the door on, one of, on a family out of our sending church who was uh, planning to go to the country of China, uh, Jesse and Hannah Green. Their visas were, as I understand it, were canceled. The door closed on them. And as they began to pray about where to go next, the Lord was redirecting us to Cambodia. As we were praying about um, new teammates, they were praying about teammates they could partner with. And the Lord read, um, brought us together and has now redirected both of our steps, our paths, to go preach the gospel in Cambodia. So we're praising God for this. Now, the second thing we're really praising God for and that we just want to ask you to join us in praising him for is we are praying for a way in which we could stay long-term in, uh, in uh, Cambodia. Uh, Cambodia, although highly unreached, is politically open to foreign church planters and missionaries. And so as a missionary, you can obtain a work visa as a religious worker and, and stay in, and work in the country um, long-term and openly. And you just have to find an organization that's willing to sponsor you. And recently, God provided that. And through that, we're, we're going to get uh, business visas in order to reside in the country long-term. So we just thank him for that. The last thing we want to thank him for is, as many of you know, Sonia and I did not... Um, Sonia and I had come to um, a hasty conclusion that we just couldn't have children. We, for many years, wanted children, and God um, saw fit at that time to not provide a child. So when we came back last year, we actually, many of you, I presume, remember, we actually began the process of adoption. We were approved for adoption. The same week, we got matched with the birth mother. Two days later, she gave birth to the child, and the day the child was born, she changed her mind and gave the child to someone else. It was that week we found out Sonia was pregnant with Theodore. And so we were praising God for that. Um, Theodore's name, um, derived from Latin, means the gift of God. We didn't know what it would look like after that, however. We didn't know if God would see fit to give us any more children. Well, we just found out that Sonia's now nine weeks along with our second child. And so we're just thanking God for his grace to us. Um, that he's made so, so clear over the last couple of years in ways that we don't deserve. Um, and so the due date is May 26, 2022. So just a few months into our relocation to Cambodia, we're going to be giving birth to, a, to another child. So um, I lost my hair my first term in Cambodia, uh, Turkey. I don't know what I'm going to lose after all that stress, but hopefully a little bit of weight maybe. I don't know. Um, but... Um, we just want to praise God for his evident grace at, um, to us over these last couple of years and ask you to join in praising him with us. I want to look with you this morning at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, um, if you have any questions about just the work that, uh, about Turkey or the work that we're doing, again, you're welcome to ask. would love to answer any questions you might have um, after your business meeting. 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4 provides for us at least part of an answer. It provides for us a perspective or a paradigm on how to understand one of the most perplexing experiences of human life. Suffering. Any of us that have lived any amount, of, uh, any amount of time on this earth know that inherent to life as a human in this fallen world, in this, on this sin-cursed earth, is suffering, hardship, pain. You have to reckon with evil. Many of us saw it and experienced it in our childhoods, 
and our broken homes growing up. Many of us see it later on in life as we go through trials that we could have never imagined the Lord would bring us through. Many of us experience it in ministry. We experience suffering on account of our proclamation of the gospel. Many of us experience hardship and suffering on account of our faith. Among our family, they mock and scorn our faith. Uh, our friends, perhaps they belittle it. They're antagonistic to it. Uh, our coworkers, And certainly, as American culture changes, we, whether it's perceived or whether it's actual, we increasingly feel maligned and ostracized by culture and society. Whereas once before, it may have been commendable to say that you are not only a Christian, but an evangelical Christian who faithfully attends um, a gathering that may have appeared to uh, be a morally upright act and way of life. Today, you're met with mockery and maybe even hostility because you're viewed as being closed-minded, narrow, bigoted, a fundamentalist, merely for believing historic Christian Christian teaching on sexuality and ethics. COVID-19 certainly reminded us that suffering is inherent to human existence. All of these experiences press upon us the reality that if we're going to learn, if we're going to live this life well, we have to learn to suffer. If you want to make it through this life well, in, in in whole, and not completely and utterly lose yourself, you have to learn how to suffer. You have to learn to go through some hardships. And in order to do that, you need hope. You need something to which you can cling, something upon which um, you can draw in your deepest, darkest, darkest moments of suffering, pain, hardship, and evil. Paul shows us what that is in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul shows us that even as a believer in the gospel, who at least externally and from a human vantage point, is characterized by utmost faithfulness to the message of Christ and living according to his lordship, you can experience suffering, you can be subjected to it. But he shows us in 2 Corinthians 4 how it is that you can go through such suffering, you can go through such hardship and not make absolute shipwreck of your faith. We've seen that all this, um, all this year, haven't we? We see, we see and hear stories of deconstruction, individuals who experience deep, dark moments in life and they deconstruct their faith and they come out on the other side, non-believers, despising the faith that they once professed. And many times, we feel those moments in our own lives. We go through moments of hardship and suffering and pain, and it calls into doubt the faith that we profess in the gospel. It calls into question the, um, the message that we so eagerly and joyfully proclaimed. So how is it that you, even on account of your faith in the gospel, can encounter suffering and not absolutely lose your faith, make absolute shipwreck of your faith as a result of it, but can come out on the other side with a deeper faith in the work of Christ, with a stronger faith in his work of sustaining us. Paul shows us that here in 2 Corinthians 4. And the short answer is the gospel message. The gospel message rightly understood brings about a paradigm shift in our understanding of suffering. The gospel message rightly understood and brought to bear on our conception of hardship or brought to bear on our understanding of suffering actually frees us to be able to suffer well and to view suffering as subservient to God's greater purposes in our lives. So how does Paul show this to us? Look, if you would, at the text. What's interesting, and we can see that this is what Paul is showing us by the way in which he opens this chapter and concludes this chapter. Look, if you would, at verse 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not 
lose heart. So he opens up with that, therefore, since, we have, uh, since through God's mercy we have received this ministry, he concludes by saying we don't lose heart. A way in which you and I would say this is, we are not utterly despaired. We don't lose our faith. But then if you would, look at verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So Paul opens up this section. Therefore, having received this ministry by mercy, we don't lose heart. Then verse 16, he says, therefore, we don't lose heart. So what Paul is doing is he's showing us how despite all of the suffering and hardship he has been subjected to, there's a reason for which he has not come to the utter the point of such despair that he loses faith in the gospel. And between verses 1 and 16 is Paul's explanation as to how he's been able to do this. And the answer is the gospel. The gospel has utterly reconstructed Paul's understanding of suffering that has thus freed him to be able to remain joyful and even remain in service to others as he himself suffers. So there are two ways at least that Paul shows us that the gospel has transformed his understanding of suffering that has enabled him to live in this way and to have a faith this deep and this sincere and this strong. The first thing Paul says that I think Paul shows us is the gospel gives suffering a new function. The gospel gives suffering a new function. Here is what I think uh, is meant by this. The gospel gives suffering a new function. Suffering is still a reality for genuine believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you do not see in 2 Corinthians and all throughout the New Testament is a kind of prosperity gospel that teaches if you have believed in Jesus, you are immune to, you have been given a vaccine against financial and economic hardship against mental suffering, mental illness, and utter mental despair. Or even physical hostility towards your faith in Jesus. What we do see is that even believers, as a result of living in a world that has been subjected to evil as a result of the fall and to sin, are still subjected to hardship and suffering. But the gospel transforms the way in which suffering functions in the life of followers of Jesus. So if you were to look at a professor in in Jesus, a believer in his gospel, and a non-believer, if you just watched a a little clip on YouTube of their lives, day day, day to day it's going to look very similar. Both throughout the course of their lives, if you were to watch like a highlight reel of their lives, both will be subjected to moments of deep, dark suffering, pain, and evil. And you could conclude, well, how is that the case if they believe this gospel and they don't? Well, the reality is, because of the way in which God is working at this time in his plan of salvation, the believer is still going to be subjected to suffering. But the way in which it's functioning is vastly different from a non-believer, from from an individual who cannot claim the promises of Christ in the gospel. I think there are at least three ways in which we see suffering functioning differently in the life of a believer, or three ways in which the gospel transforms the function of suffering in the life of a believer. Number one, it reveals God's power. Suffering in the life of a follower of Jesus functions so as to reveal God's power. Look, if you would, at verse 7. Verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus 
so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now, what's interesting, when you look at verse, uh, when you begin looking at verses 7 and 7 through 9 in particular, almost assuredly what Paul is doing here is counteracting or responding to some accusations that have been leveled against him. So 2 Corinthians 3 Paul expounds upon, he kind of uh, delineates this ministry that he has received as an apostle. He is a minister of the new covenant, the covenant that we just celebrated by partaking of communion. The covenant, this bond, this oath between God and man that was brought about by Jesus the Messiah this new covenant that was brought about as a result of his death, burial, and resurrection. When we celebrate the communion uh, cup and bread, we're celebrating the new covenant. And we are both reminding ourselves and celebrating um, uh, the reality that we, you and I, if we believe in the gospel, are members of the new covenant. And Paul is saying he is a member of this, a, a, a proclaimer of this, a minister of this, an apostle of the new covenant, which is uh, a way of saying he was a messenger of the revelation of Jesus the Messiah, that Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants, the Old Testament promises, the Old Testament prophecies of a Messiah of an anointed one, a Christ who was to come and fulfill God's good plan and purpose of saving his people from sin, redeeming them from sin, and regathering them as his people, reconstituting them as his people, and then broadcasting this glorious message to all nations that any and all that will believe in Jesus as the Messiah will receive forgiveness of sins and become the covenant people of God. Paul is a messenger of this glorious end-time message. Now, you read 2 Corinthians 3, and you could think, well, this is is a great vocation. You know, sometimes we look on the internet, and we look for uh, ideal vocations in our our society. Um, Highest paying, best benefits, uh, best hours. You might read 2 Corinthians 3 and think of 2 Corinthians 3 as kind of Paul's description of the vocation of a minister of the new covenant of a proclaimer of the gospel and think, well, that's a great gig. I want to I get some training and do that. I want to get on board with this vocation. Then you read 2 Corinthians 4, and you're like, okay, this isn't so good after all. Um, it sounds like being an apostle, as Paul was, is actually quite difficult. One of the accusations that was leveled against Paul was that he was a false apostle. The gospel that he preached was fake. It was kind of an, uh, a, a pseudo-gospel, a fake gospel. And that he was going around declaring Jesus as the Messiah, and that through faith in him you will be justified by faith. And there were these false messengers among the Corinthians saying, that's, that's not true. That's not the message of the gospel. Why, and how did they, uh, uh, how did they attempt to, um, to demonstrate and to prove their point? Because, they would say, Paul is suffering all the time. They would say, they were saying essentially, if Paul was a real apostle, if the gospel that he is preaching is genuine, then he would not be suffering as much as he does. You see, these agitators, these false messengers among the Corinthians, really did function the way in which you and I function at times. We really do think at times that hardship is a revelation, a manifestation of God's displeasure and of His wrath being poured out upon us and at times of blessing and abundance. And when things are going well, our schedules are well-ordered, things in life, our bills are paid. We're not being mocked for our faith. Quite the contrary, our neighbors love us and love being with us. We think, okay, that is, those are the times in which God is making it evident. He's blessing us. His grace is poured out upon us. He, and He loves us and we are His people. And then in times of suffering, we think, well, maybe that's not true. What Paul is showing you 
is that you have not brought the gospel to bear on the way in which you think of suffering. Paul is saying quite the contrary. It is God who brought Paul into suffering. It is God who redirected the steps of Paul and brought him along the path of hardship. It was his good pleasure to do that. Why? So as to reveal God's power in the life of Paul. Some of these accusations, uh, one of the ways we know that Paul is responding to some accusations is verse 8. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Now, what's interesting when he says perplexed, but not in despair, I think that basically, essentially what Paul is saying is, does he quite, does he exhaustively and maybe even accurately understand the purpose or the reason for which God subjected him to suffering? Nope. We are perplexed, Paul says. We don't quite get it. We are confounded. But you know what? It doesn't drive us to despair. It doesn't lead us to question God's goodness and love for us in Christ. But then he says, persecuted but not abandoned. This is one of the accusations that was leveled against the apostleship and gospel of Paul. The, the false messengers were saying, we know that God has abandoned him, that God is not with him because he is being persecuted. And this is evidence, as we can see in the Old Testament, as the Old Testament legal code called for, that God is bringing about his displeasure and his wrath upon Paul, basically to quiet him. Paul is saying, yeah, we are perplexed, but God hasn't abandoned us. This isn't evidence that God has forsaken us. One of the ways in which Paul could have counteracted that argument is to say, so what about Jesus? Was it not Jesus who on the cross cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If Jesus can cry that in times of hardship and suffering, so too will his people be subjected to such suffering. And even they at times, even we at times, will be left wondering, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Paul knows because Christ cried that on his behalf, he didn't have to. He knew that God had not forsaken him. So he's responding to these accusations, but he's making it very clear. The problem is not the legitimacy of his apostleship, of his conversion to Christ, of his faith in the gospel. The problem is that the false messengers, and consequently the Corinthians, are not understanding the way in which God uses suffering in the life of a believer. So too it is with us. What this teaches us here, this reality that um, suffering is intended to reveal God's power, there will be times in and out of your life, in and through your life, where God will not only see fit to allow suffering to come into your life, but he will subject you to it. He himself will bring it about. Now, this is very counterintuitive to the way in which we think of God. This seems to be in tension with his mercy and his love and his grace and his justice. But what we see in 2 Corinthians 4 is that it, is, it was God himself who brought suffering about in the life of Paul. And it is God himself who will at times bring it about in your life and my life. For the purpose, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12 of putting on full display your weakness so that his power will shine radiantly through it. There are times in which it will please God to humiliatingly reveal your shortcomings, your weaknesses, so that his powerful work of grace will be fully on display for others to see. We experience this in Turkey in a way we never have. You start preaching the gospel in um, a hard and hostile, resistant city. You start leading and shepherding a church. And you have to make decisions for which you just don't possess the wisdom. You're confronted with difficulties and circumstances for which you don't have an answer. You end up getting introduced to uh, new realities and experiences that you never anticipated, such as having being, being told to leave a country and looking at your brothers and sisters whom you love and having to tell them, I have to leave and I don't know if I'm going to see you again. You know what this does is it brings you to your absolute wit's end. You realize, I don't have the answers for everything. I am completely stressed out. And I, I, I'm overwhelmed with stress. Stress. 
I can remember nights before we had to leave where I was up till three, four, five in the morning simply because I couldn't sleep. The stress was so overwhelming and overcoming. And you know what God did through that time was completely reveal my weaknesses. I saw the limits, the limitations of my wisdom and knowledge. I saw my inability to lead at times when I needed to lead. I saw how stress crushed me. But you know, at the same time, God was working. Individuals came to the church, heard the gospel. There was a brother who we thought we were going to have to put under church discipline, but he, by the grace of God, repented and came back. None of this was my doing. I was too weak at the time. I could not have led that effectively. But God saw fit to, to magnify my weakness, to display his awesome power. And God is going to do that at times in your life. So the second thing that we see here about the way in which suffering functions is one, it reveals or it extends God's grace. Look, if you would, at verses 12 through 15. And we'll get through this fairly quickly. 12 through 15. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same, that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Paul recognized that in times when he was subjected to suffering, that the gospel transformed his conception of that hardship and he realized it was not a way, a moment in which he needed to sulk and loathe in self-pity and wondering why on earth did God do this to me. Rather, he realized it was a time in which God would extend his grace to more and more people through his life. Here's another way of putting this. Paul was suffering because he was traveling around so as to preach the gospel to new peoples and to new regions. It was for that reason that he was suffering. He would travel, and his ship would wreck. Literally, he was in shipwrecks. He would travel, meet new people, and get attacked by a snake. He would go to a town and get stoned. He, we can see in 1 Corinthians and, and, and even 2 Corinthians, he experienced financial hardship. He didn't know if he was going to uh, be able to pay his next bill. He didn't know where the funds would come from. Now, individuals could, could have and did look at his life and ask, Paul, why on earth would you do this? You were trained by one of the um, most recognized and renowned Jewish scholars of our day. You don't have to, do, you don't have to be subjected to the suffering. You have a trade. You could, go easy, you could easily go and make money and provide for yourself. You don't have to travel around and experience all of this pain. And he says, on account of the gospel, I'm willing to do it. On account of the gospel, I'm willing to be subjected to all of this pain and hardship and suffering because as I'm willing to pour out my life, it then extends the life of Christ to others. Now, from a human vantage point, humanly, we cannot view we, we we can't view our suffering this way. We view our suffering personally and selfishly. And our moments of suffering, we think, how can I ensure that I'm going to be financially secure? How can I ensure that I and my family are going to be stable? How can I ensure that we're going to be steady and well taken care of? And that, now what I'm not saying is I'm not denying that those are good pursuits. There are other biblical commands that have to nuance the way in which we would temper the way that we would interpret 2 Corinthians 4. But what I am saying is that the gospel uh, transformed the way in which Paul viewed suffering so that he could say, if on account of the gospel and extending that life-giving message to others, I'm subjected to hardship, I'll do it. I'll do it any day. I'll take that suffering any day. This reality ought to shape the way in which we approach our times of suffering and even our willingness to be subjected to it. 
Many ask us, why would you go overseas when you could ha- be when you could pursue a lucrative career in America? Why would you go overseas when you can live in a rel- in a, in a modern um, city state here in America? And I would have to say, if God had not given us faith in order to do it, we wouldn't do it. But what we do realize is that as we lay down pleasures and sacrifice pleasures and even willingly subject ourselves to the hardships accompanied with living overseas and proclaiming the gospel in highly unreached regions, we recognize that it is a way in which God is going to extend the life-giving message of Christ. And so, by the grace of God, we can say, let us be subjected to suffering and hardship for the sake of his message among the nations. I would say the same should shape the way in which we view our suffering today. Do you have times in which you don't want to be around your family because you know if you do, it's going to be hard and difficult because of how broken and hard to be around they are? Are they going to mock you and scorn you? And you just decide, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to have to be around them and listen to those things. I would say in that moment, bring the gospel to bear upon the way in which you view your family and say, It is going to be difficult to be around them. They probably are going to get on my nerves a bit. They might even mock me. But for the sake of the gospel and being able to demonstrate it to them, both in word and deed, um, I'm going to be with them and I'm going to minister to them. The last thing we see here is that how does suffering function for a believer? It advances God's salvation in our lives. Now, what do I mean by this? Look, if you would, at verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now look with me, if you would, um, at verses 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. When you look at verses 16 through 18 and verses 3 through 6, and especially verses 3 through 6, you see these themes of creation. For example, in, uh, he says in, um, mm, um, in, in verse 4, he, he, uh, the light of the gospel that displays, and then he refers to the image of God. What Paul is doing in verses 3 through 6 is he's alluding to and drawing upon creation terminology that we see in Genesis chapter 1. Particularly Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28, where God creates all things. He makes creation, and then he makes mankind, Adam and Eve in particular, in his image, as we see in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. He makes mankind, and he makes them in his image. And he gives them this task. Sometimes it's called the dominion mandate or the cultural mandate. He gives them this task to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And then you look at Genesis chapter 2, particularly verses 14 through 16, and you see this this dominion mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve. They They were placed in the Garden of Eden, this one particular region out of all the creation, and God plants them into the Garden of Eden and gives them the task of cultivating the Garden of Eden, creating life and culture and sustenance from the Garden of Eden. And God's purpose, the dominion mandate, was for Adam and Eve to procreate and gradually, progressively, and slowly but surely fill up the earth with progeny who know and worship God, who know Him immediately without any mediators, without the uh, effect of sin, without the need of sacrifice, 
And if Adam had succeeded in this task, he would have began in Eden and expanded all the way out from Eden and to the four corners of the globe. And thus, if that had happened, we would have never known a world characterized by sin. You wonder where does suffering and pain and hardship come from? It comes from man's fall into sin. It comes from the presence of sin upon this earth. This world would have never known terms such as suffering, pain, or evil. It would have been characterized continuously by the, as, uh, the way in which God characterized it in Genesis 1. He would have continuously looked upon the creation and saw that it was good. And man would have never had need of a mediator and a redeemer and a savior. But mankind did not obey this task. Adam and Eve did not fill the earth with worshipers of God. We see in Genesis 3 that they disobeyed God and fell into sin. And as a result, instead of filling up the earth with worshipers of God who were made in his image, we see that they filled this earth with those who bore the image of Adam, who did not know God and rather fled from him and were exiled from his presence. But as the Old Testament unfolds, God gives a promise in Genesis 3.15 that he's going to send a seed from the wo a woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And as the Old Testament unfolds, it slowly and progressively reveals how God is going to bring about this promise, how he's going to make good on this promise. The seed from the woman who will come and save man from Satan and the effects of creation um, and its fall into sin. And as the Old Testament unfolds, we realize it's going to be a descendant of Abraham. And then further along, we realize it's going to be a king from the line of David who's going to come and be like one into the Son of Man, as Daniel 7 teaches us, who's going to come and build up God's good kingdom on earth that's characterized by sinlessness, mercy, justice, and no presence of evil. Then when we get to the Gospels, Matthew chapter 1 in particular, we see the Gospel writers drawing upon themes in Genesis and drawing upon these promises that the Old Testament prophets gave and then applying them to the life and ministry of Jesus. We see that Jesus is the one who has come, who is greater than David, who has come to fulfill the promise to David that he would build, God, build up God's kingdom on earth and sit upon the Davidic throne. We see that he is one who is better than Moses, who has come to renew and save God's people and give them his spirit so that they can fulfill the law. We see that he's the Messiah who's come to regather God's people from their exile and rebuild them as his people. But then we see that he dies on a cross, suffering the most gruesome death as a result of the evil in this world and the subjection of humans to suffering as a result of it. But three days later, he, ra he rises from the dead. And in the book of Acts, we see Peter preaching, making it very clear that this was God's vindication of his son. It was God declaring that this is, in fact, my son who was unjustly slaughtered and suffered. But Paul tells us in Romans 4 that he did this for our justification. And now, as a result of his resurrection from the dead and overcoming death, Jesus has brought about a new creation. We see these good, glorious promises in the new covenant that one day God is going to return and perfectly renew the earth and purge it from sin and all of its disastrous effects. So that is a future promise which we are waiting fulfillment. But when we look in texts such as 2 Corinthians 4, we see that part that has already partially been introduced into our experience as Christians. Already we're experiencing the results of the new creation. Already we're experiencing the results of the powerful, renewing, creative work of God. This happens through the indwelling of the Spirit. But what Paul is making clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is that a new creation is coming. It has at this time in God's plan and program of salvation already been introduced. And those who profess faith in Jesus and are indwelt by the Spirit, already experience that powerful new creational work. As our minds, 
as our desires, as our actions are sanctified from the old creation, from the old order, from the old Adam, from sin. And we are renewed into the image of Christ. Have you ever wondered why it is that Genesis 1, we see this idea of the image of God, and then Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 29, we see Paul saying that we are being renewed into the image of Christ? God is renewing that image that was fallen and, and distorted at the fall. And now we are being renewed into the image of Christ. And that work has begun even now in your life and in my life. This is why in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says we are a new creation. This doesn't mean, um, this isn't kind of this like motivational, inspiring truth that we've been given, you know, like a second chance and we're a new man and we're not who we used to be, the way in which we often commonly and culturally use it. What he's literally saying is God's new creation that's coming at the end has already been introduced presently and it's at work in the life of those who profess faith in the gospel of Jesus through the indwelling spirit. So what this means is presently God is at work as we see in 16 through 18 to sanctify us from sin and all of its effects to prepare us for the day in which we will meet him face to face. And as 1 John 3 verse 2 states, at that time we will be just like him. We will be fully made and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ because we will see him as he is. We will be completely purged and perfected from sin and all of its effects on our lives. No more mental illnesses. No more stress. No more anxiety. No more reason to lack faith in God. No more lust. Because we will be just like Jesus in all of his righteous perfection. And that work of God preparing you to be like that one day has been introduced into the present and God is doing it now. So I said that it advances our salvation. What do I mean by that? Many times when we use the term salvation, that particular term is not used in this text, but the idea is there. Many times when we use the term salvation, we say things such as, are you saved? Have you been saved uh, in the past tense? There's a sense of truth to that. It is definitive. We can know if we've been saved by Christ, delivered from the domain of sin, Romans chapter 6. And at the same time, it's a reality that's ongoing and incomplete until the day that we die. Salvation is something you already possess, but it's something that will be perfected at the end. And we today must continually be renewed and sanctified from sin so as to demonstrate that that is a reality and so that it will be a prize which we inherit at the end when he comes back. So here's one of the things that means. If you profess to be saved, if you profess to be a Christian, but you're, you, you are struggling with the same sin, you've been struggling with the same sin for 20 years and you have no angst to fight against it, you're probably not saved. The Spirit is probably not present encouraging you and equipping you and empowering you to fight against that sin. And there are sins that if we persist in without any, any guilt, without any sorrow, without any longing to overcome, you probably are on the path to hell. That is what Paul makes clear. This is how we're to understand salvation. So for those of us that are genuinely and truly indwelt by God's Spirit and day by day believing in His gospel and fighting against sin, we can have assurance. We are saved and we're going to be with Him eternally. But if that urge and that longing to overcome sin and its effects are not presently within you, you ought to examine yourself. But Paul says, that that work of accomplishing this great salvation, renewing him day by day from sin and transforming him more and more to the image of his son is at work in him presently and is largely accomplished through suffering. So here's what we learn about suffering. Because of this great glorious reality that suffering is an instrument, a tool in the hand of God to accomplish our salvation and prepare us for the day in which we will meet him, we can joyfully embrace suffering. 
We can come to moments of hardship, pain, and suffering, suffering in our lives and realize suffering is no longer the enemy, the enemy of our joy, but a tool that God is using to increase our eternal joy and glory. So if and when, brother or sister, God recently or shortly sees fit to subject you to suffering, remember and hold on to this, these glorious truths. In that moment of suffering, you remind yourself, God is using this to renew my inner man and to advance and accomplish my salvation so that I will be able to see him in holiness on the day that he comes. And holding on to, clinging on to that promise will enable you to joyfully and faithfully suffer in the day that it comes so that you will not lose faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great and glorious truth. Give us faith to believe it and be transformed by it. In Christ's name, amen.